Welcome to Asia Writing, a podcast from Latrobe Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. I'm your host, Nick Bisley, the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia. China's emergence as a power of the first rank has changed Asia and indeed the world. It has reordered established patterns of trade and investment, unsettled the long-standing regional balance of power and brought old historical antagonisms to the surface. As President Xi Jinping consolidates his power, China increasingly presents a confident and at times assertive face to the wider world. But what does China want from its region, and how much change would this represent? What options exist for Australia to influence how the People's Republic comports itself on the wider global stage? Joining me to discuss these issues and more is the Honourable Kevin Rudd. Kevin served as Australia's 26th Prime Minister from 2007 to 2010 and again in 2013 and he served as Foreign Minister from 2010 to 2012. He's a long-time China watcher and is currently the President of the Asia Society Policy Institute based in New York City. The story of China's rise I think is well known. Unparalleled economic growth, rapid industrialization, the greatest story in human development history, hundreds of millions of people moved out of poverty within a single lifespan. All of that's well known. Kevin, you've been watching China closely for your entire adult life. What are the changes of the past few decades that really matter, that that may be missed in all the hype, that people may have overlooked in terms of things that have changed that are meaningful for, for Chinese people? I think one of the great things which goes unrecorded is what's happening on the ground in uh, Chinese villages and provincial towns and centres where we've had this extraordinary explosion of religious belief. This goes unrecorded by and large and unobserved. Um, but whether it's uh, Buddhism or Catholicism or Protestantism or a whole bunch of eclectic versions thereof, this has, I think, taken the party authorities in China by some surprise and with some level of concern. So much so that in uh, Zhejiang, in uh, Wenzhou, which is supposedly one of China's uh, emerging strong centers of uh, new forms of Protestant Christianity, the local party authorities decided to um, tear down a whole bunch of churches which had been built without authority, without uh, approval from the relevant local authorities. So what we never know about China, those of us who seek to analyse the country's high politics and grand strategy, is what's actually happened on the ground. I just observe this. I know it's of uh, genuine interest and concern to the Chinese authorities and certainly being measured by a range of institutions around the world. Rarely do I see it in the newspapers. Yeah, I think it's Howard French's book, which said that there's roughly, he thinks, about the same number of Christians in China as there are members of the Communist Party with zero overlap between the two. Well, constitutionally under the Chinese Communist Party, you've got to be a Marxist materialist. And Xi Jinping reminded everybody of that recently, unless there was any creeping Christianity entering the ranks of the party. But yeah, you've got a party with 86 million members, and the, the estimates I have for Christianity of its various breeds is somewhere between 70 and 100 million, if you include the formal church and the informal church in the Chinese system. Where does all that go in terms of the future evolution of China? I have no idea. But your question was, what's happening which elicits interest where many analyses of China's future evolution have often got it wrong is in their understanding of what's really unfolding in the deep, let's call it, sociology of the country. Yeah, because I think there is a tendency to get obsessed with, you know, how many hundreds of millions of tons of steel and the trade balance and the military Mm. spending and that sort of stuff, whereas as anyone who's been to China knows, the place at the human level is very, very different and very organic and very hard to put your fingers on. I first went to China in uh, Guangdong in 1983, 
and it was a fishing village. The transition from Hong Kong to that part of China then was like going back in time. Um, now you can barely tell the difference between the two. Well, you raise a good point. I was uh, literally in Shenzhen less than a week ago, and the comparative economic data now between Shenzhen, the fishing village of 30,000 people back in the early 80s, just prior to the special economic zone policy being launched for there and three other locations. And now uh, the local authorities confidently tell me that it will surpass Hong Kong as an economic entity within the next 12 months. Yeah, I think there was, there was a special report in The Economist recently about the Pearl River Delta, and Hong Kong is just a city amongst other cities. So great has been the transformation. Yes, that sort of reflects on the fact that the sun is well and truly setting on what was the British Empire. <laughs> the 19th National Party Congress has just concluded to, to sort of link to Xi Jinping, and clearly she has emerged with a stronger hand than he had. What's your sense of what his new leadership will bring to China over the next five years? What's going to be the upshot of having a standing committee in his image and a Politburo largely in his image going to be? I think there'll be three things which come out of this further consolidation of Xi Jinping's power. One is uh, he will continue to strengthen the central role of the party, both in relation to the traditional organizations of the state, but also in state-owned enterprises, but here's the interesting rub within private firms as well. And there's an emerging debate about the extent to which the country or the state should now begin to be allowed to take equity in large private firms in order to keep them within, let's call it, the broader disciplines of the country. Often the justifications for this are about the potential instabilities arising from uh, the explosion of digital finance from firms like uh, Alibaba, etc., and does that present a systemic threat to the monetary policy authorities? Other times I think it's a question of actual political control and not allowing other centres of real power to emerge. So that's one. I think the second is we're going to see a bolder China in the region and the world at large. And I think if I was in Southeast Asia, I'd be expecting an even more vigorous Chinese embrace of the countries of Southeast Asia, which China sees as falling within its overall zone of influence uh, rather than being either neutral position between the United States and China, uh, let alone being an American satrapy anchored in what were historically the big alliances of Thailand and the Philippines and to a lesser extent Singapore and Malaysia. What do you think is going to be the consequences in terms of building institutions to try to consolidate that more bold Chinese um, international vision? We've seen AIIB being created. Belt and Road is this big sprawling infrastructure program, but as yet no institutional edifice. There's a whole range of other elements that already exist, something that your group, the Asia Society Policy Institute's recent report on the East Asia Summit as a possible mechanism. How do you think China is going to seek to shape that sort of institutional setting to strengthen that kind of bolder vision as you've described it? If I was trying to describe a Chinese grand strategy for regional or global institutional evolution, I think it probably falls into two parts. Within the existing institutions, regionally and globally, China will actually seek to have a much more decisive national voice. And in ASEAN's uh, deliberations over the last half decade, uh, we've seen copious example for that when, shall we say, pro-Chinese uh, ASEAN states led by both Cambodia and Laos have um, threatened traditional consensus amongst the Southeast Asian states on core questions, including the South China Sea. Uh, we'll also, I think, see um, an interesting evolution of China's position with the East Asian summit 
China is not hostile to the idea of the East Asian Summit assuming a greater regional multilateral security role uh, for its own reasons. The Trump administration is likely to be more hostile. But I would actually sense across the rest of East Asia there may be a more considered uh, position of support. So what I'm saying is that if you match that with China's greater role within the United Nations and greater role within the Bretton Wood institutions, you see one element of Chinese grand strategy at work, which is enhancing your national voice within the institutions which exist. And the second arm of the strategy is to grow new institutions, almost parallel to existing mm. structures, whether that's uh, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, whether that is uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, whether it is actually the further enhancement and redirection of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the SCO, which while technically not a Chinese institution, but originally one coming out of Kazakhstan, increasingly has its uh, locus of control in uh, Beijing rather than elsewhere. And then there is SICA, another, as it were, Eurasian emerging security dialogue and collaboration. Uh, what I note from a number of these institutions is that they are all designed to enhance, shall I say, China's uh, continental uh, frontier as China recognises the continuing constraints on its maritime frontier through the continued overwhelming presence of United States strategic forces in the West Pacific. You do get a sense that the kind of institutional entrepreneurship, if you want to call it that, is out West. There's a sense of the opportunities for China lie in that direction. And as you rightly point out, the SEO is not an example of Kazakh hegemony, but uh, something rather more Chinese characteristics. I want to turn now to what's probably the most important bilateral relationship in the world, and that's the US-China relationship. How would you characterize where that's at now and where do you see it trending over the next few years? I see it strategically trending negative. And the reason for that is that there is no coherent China strategy within this US administration. And furthermore, for the next three years, we have a president who is transactional around individual security and economic issues such as North Korea or trade access, rather than having an integrated strategy for dealing with China as a whole, and particularly of the type which was effectively adopted on a bipartisan basis by previous US administrations going back to the time of Nixon and Kissinger. At the same time, you have an increasingly um, activist China, both within the region and in the world. And you also have what I would describe as some um, unique new phenomenon. You asked me before about surprising things in the evolution of China's posture domestically and internationally. The fact that we now have the Chinese Navy undertaking exercises with the Russian fleet in, first of all, the Mediterranean and most recently the Baltic uh, with the Russians is somewhat eye-opening against China's traditional concerns about being close to home or at best beginning to secure its trade routes to the Middle East as a source of Chinese oil. That is now being enhanced considerably. A Chinese naval base in Djibouti, uh, military exercises at sea, I should say, with the Russians and the Med, and then moving on to the Baltic. So what does all that mean in the sweep of things? I think the China-US relations dynamic is now not exclusively bilateral. It is uh, sharply bilateral, focused on the questions of the bilateral economic relationship, which is becoming more adversarial, not less. Secondly, on the regional security relationship led by North Korea, more problematic rather than less. But new global dimensions to the relationship as China continues to add its voice 
and apparent support to Russian positions, whether it's at the UN Security Council level over the Ukraine or through the direct bilateral military maneuvers with the Russian fleet. Do you get a sense that the US approach to China is almost sort of stuck in aspic in a way? That's to say as a kind of, we want everything to remain forever as if it were kind of 2003. American maritime predominance is there and you've got the basic structures of how things have been for a long period, just a very wealthy affluent China that just gets tacked on. My sense is that's part of the reason why the US find it so difficult to grapple with China or to develop a coherent strategy is that it can't quite come to the terms with the fact that the old model just isn't going to work given how big China is and what its ambitions are. I think there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, China is an activist dynamic player here uh, with a well-developed internal, regional and global and bilateral strategy with the United States. Uh, the United States I see increasingly as lacking such a strategy at all three levels, partly because of its overwhelming domestic preoccupations under the Trump presidency, but partly because the change in the international circumstances become so vast and frankly so dynamic and so increasingly beyond immediate American diktat. So when you now have, frankly, China, the overwhelming economic presence in um, East Asia and the West Pacific, and the United States lagging, and when you see uh, also uh, moving across uh, the Eurasian continent, the unfolding of the BRI, it's very difficult for the American body politic and even its national security apparatus to get its collective head around the fact that the world's radically changing under its feet. So while the domestic debate continues with the implosion of the Republican Party between Trump and mainstream Republicans, between the Tea Party and mainstream Republicans, between Trump and the Tea Party Republicans, and the other Barnum and Bailey circus, which otherwise constitutes the Republican side of politics at the moment in the US, and the Democrats going through this long cathartic exercise of what their answer is domestically, to the large number of middle-class, white, working-class and unemployed voters turning not to the Democrats but turning to Trump. As this process unfolds for the years ahead in the absence of a Republican or Democrat conclusion to how to respond to domestic demise, I think that enhances further the inability of the US body politic to get its collective act together. Yeah, and you see this now. There's still not key roles in state defence national security coordinating process basically doesn't exist by all accounts. Virtually every diplomatic initiative this year where the US normally you see them taking a leadership role has been described as at best a little bit chaotic and understaffed, at worst downright shambolic. And now that's partly a Trump thing where they haven't put people in place, but there does seem to be some... So it's the intersection of many factors at once. It's the unique qualities of the Trump administration in terms of, let's call it, isolationism as opposed to regional and global consistent engagement. Two, the absence of, shall I say it, um, the vast number of appointments necessary across the agencies of state to drive the machinery of state to deliver the normal policy development processes to the National Security Council because simply thousands of appointments haven't been made and the Trump Republicans think that's not a bad thing. It's kind of draining mm. the swamp as they would see it. And then thirdly, the regional and global ground changing beneath their feet, uh, not just the implosions in Europe, but China ascendant across the Asian hemisphere and more broadly. I want to turn to Australia now. Over the past sort of 12 to 18 months, you've seen the Turnbull government present a much more critical, one might even say kind of hawkish face about China in a number of 
speeches and policy documents. Do you agree with the position that they've taken in terms of being critical of China so far? And how do you think Australia ought to approach its relations with the PRC? The honest answer to your question is I don't follow its entrails because I'm based in the United States. I run an American think tank which has a global reach where one of the subjects we might look at is Australia-China relations. But more prominent among those is uh, China's relationship with Japan, the ROK, with Southeast Asia, with Europe, etc. So I'm not seeking to avoid or evade your question, but I'm conscious of what I may have missed in terms of the passing traffic. But I think the second point is this. Turnbull, surprisingly, as someone involved in international business, does not have a framework for understanding or analysing China, let alone developing a consistent policy architecture for dealing with it. When the government was first elected, for example, I was roundly criticised by Abbott and then simultaneously by Turnbull for being insensitive to Chinese needs, for being far too assertive on questions where our interests may not have coincided with the Chinese. And I remember them stringing together a whole bunch of uh, their more sycophantic business community including the likes of James Packer and, to some extent, Kerry Stokes, all saying so much for the China expert, Prime Minister Rudd. All he did was succeed in um, offending the Chinese at multiple levels. And the alternative approach uh, was the position that the Conservatives took to the 2013 election and worked on during 2014, which is one which said that Huawei is a very good thing, Huawei, for example, the Chinese telecommunications company should be fully integrated into the national broadband network. There should be no concerns of a national security nature or confidentiality nature about any of that until they received their first national security briefings. Um, And then suddenly the tune changed. And so we've gone to all the way with the Middle Kingdom to a policy which almost sounds Cold War-like in its rhetoric. We've had this massive pendulum swing from one end of the China policy uh, spectrum to the other. The truth is, I mean, my view is that Australia requires a balanced, sober relationship with the People's Republic of China in which we are, A, confident of our values as belonging to the Western community of nations and recognising the differences between our values and Chinese political values as reflected in their own political arrangements. Secondly, uh, we should be confident of our national interests, uh, where they are consistent with and where they are inconsistent with China's national interests, and be very frank in their articulation, politely, but frank. China would do the same. China does the same. Thirdly, on the question of economic interests, including trade and investment matters, a similarly pragmatic, robust engagement about what suits the Australian national economic interest and what suits the Chinese national economic interest. And those intersecting sets will probably represent 85% of the transactions, but they're going to be 15% which are tough. And frankly, if we were doing it in reverse, the Chinese would object to various Australian proposals if those investment or other projects uh, were to be put to the Chinese for investment in various sensitive uh, Chinese industrial sectors. So all I have ever stood for is a balanced, uh, robust, mature relationship which is deeply respectful of China's national achievements, deeply respectful of the fact that their political system is different, but very confident of the fact that we actually come from a different political tradition, but we have a massive set of overlapping interests and some conflicting ones. The Asia Society Policy Institute report that I referred to earlier is, is titled Sustaining Asia's Long Peace. When you look out over the next five or ten years, how optimistic are you that the long peace will be sustained in Asia? 
Not particularly optimistic at present, which is why I and others wrote that report over the last two years. It's actually an important report I'd uh, recommend it to your listeners. Uh, we put it together beginning in 2015 with a panel including the former foreign minister of the Russian Federation, uh, former foreign ministers of Japan and South Korea, people that recently served, a member of the Foreign Policy Board of the People's Republic of China, the immediate past National Security Advisor of India, immediate past Foreign Minister of Indonesia, Martin Natalagawa, as well as Tom Donilon, the former US National Security Advisor, and with me chairing it and providing the beer on the way through to make sure that we could actually find some consensus. But all of them coming from Russian, Chinese, Japanese, American and Indian perspectives are of the view we do need to evolve a regional security institution which can help take the regional security temperature down rather than allowing everything to bilateralize itself or simply become subsets of the uh, grand, shall I say, um, confrontation which may emerge between China and the United States. In other words, concepts of common security, concepts of uh, what are our common security interests within the region, from humanitarian disasters through to counterterrorism to even dealing with some of the hard stuff on territorial matters over time. Unless you build an institution consciously over time, then everything, frankly, becomes bilateralized. And when things are purely bilateralized at the security level, they become pretty fractious, pretty fragile, pretty brittle. Whereas if you've got institutional norms around them, there is some hope that the habits of security policy collaboration become entrenched over time. And on that score, look at the evolution of Europe in the period since 45, with both the European Union, the Helsinki Accords, even the Council of Europe. These institutions have all played some role in putting to bed a number of, but not all, the traditional historical and security tensions within wider Europe. So it can be done, but it takes a lot of work. Yeah, well, someone's got to take the lead and someone's got to do the conceptual work and then socialise it into the institutions of governments. So we at the Asia Society Policy Institute in New York are now doing that with the 18 member states of the East Asian Summit and asking uh, these uh, governments to consider this approach uh, for the medium term, to consider appointing a panel of eminent um, persons to develop this proposal further in a way which meets the demands and interests of the member states. So it's us using the channels of second-track diplomacy to analyse carefully where the trend lies, which is not good, Uh, look at what you can constructively do to make that trend better, while being frank about the fact you can't solve all of it, given that the uh, strategic standoff between the Americans and the Chinese will remain. But if you simply stand there idly, fold your arms, and just hope it all works out in the morning, uh, that doesn't sound like a Ford plan to me. That's all the time that we have. Thanks for being part of the podcast, Kevin. Thanks very much for having me and uh, for all the good folks who uh, work on these complex questions here in Oz. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast of the Trobe Asia, with Kevin Rudd, the former Prime Minister of Australia and longtime China watcher. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Reviews are always appreciated. You can follow us all at Twitter. Kevin is at Mr. K. Rudd. I'm at Nick Bisley, and we are at La Trobe Asia. I'm Nick Bisley. Thanks for listening.